0: Hey, this is Steve Olsher, and we've gone through the archives to find some of our favorite episodes from over the years of Reinvention Radio. We've been doing this a long time. As a matter of fact, we released our first episode of Reinvention Radio in 2009, and we've sat down with literally hundreds of people over the years, and we decided, you know what? Let's find some of our favorites, and we're going to re-release them as Reinvention Radio Classics. Hope you enjoy it. Love podcasts, you'll love podcast magazine, taking readers into the lives of today's leading podcasters and beyond the microphone of the show's fans love. Each month, Podcast Magazine's dedicated writers share personal interviews, industry happenings, exclusive categorical charts, and independent ratings and reviews of under-the-radar shows. If you listen to podcasts, subscribe now at podcastmagazine.com and grab a free lifetime subscription while you can. That's podcastmagazine.com. This is where normal comes to die. Mediocrity meets its final demise, and the status quo is unabashedly dismantled. Welcome to Reinvention Radio. Now, here's your host, Steve Ulscher. Welcome to a very, very special edition here of Reinvention Radio, a live holiday video edition. Steve Ulscher hanging out with Mary Goulet. Hey, Mary Goulet. Hello. Hello, hello. Richie Ote, what's up, baby, baby?
1: how's it going how's everybody doing
0: all right and we have the one and only mr michael hyatt joining us so michael i uh, i know you've got a a busy holiday week here i've seen the size of your family so you probably started your christmas shopping already i'm sure so uh for you to take some time out is uh, is really really appreciated where, where are you joining us from today
2: i'm in nashville tennessee just right outside of nashville
0: that's where my dad is my dad really? is in nashville tennessee he is yeah and uh, used to live in uh, Franklin, and now he's uh, over in Nashville, so there you go.
2: Fantastic. All
0: right, yeah, so let, let's do this. Let's jump right into it, because we've got a lot of ground we want to cover. And okay. uh, for those who don't know uh, Michael, Michael is the author of a, a number of, of different books. Two of my favorites are Platform, Get Noticed in a Noisy World, uh, and also uh, the uh, Living, Living Forward book, uh, which is a proven plan to stop Drifting and get the life you want, which is a, a book that you co-wrote with uh, with Daniel Harkavy. Am I pronouncing that right? Is it Harkavy? That's what you say. No, that's
2: yeah. perfect. Yep. All
0: right. Awesome. And uh, and so you've got a pretty storied entrepreneurial background. Uh, former chairman and CEO of Thomas uh, Nelson Publishers, which is the largest faith-based publisher in the world, and now a part of HarperCollins. Uh, you began your career at World Publishing uh, while a senior at Baylor, which is uh, go Baylor. Uh, and in the 30 years since, I mean, you've worked in nearly every facet of book publishing. Now, today, a lot of folks know you as a prolific blogger, as a prolific uh, podcaster, and so I'm definitely going to get some uh, tips and strategies and shortcuts from you on that. Uh, and also as, uh, as an influencer, Forbes said that you are one of the top 10 online marketing experts to follow and one of the top 50 social media influencers your podcast as I mentioned this is your life is consistently in the top 10 of the self-help category which is a very crowded category so congrats on that and uh, downloaded by more than 300,000 people per month 270,000 followers on Twitter and also the president and platform of platform university which is actually how I first became familiar uh, with you through the book platform platform university because uh, as I was looking to get into the publishing world that is the term that I kept hearing over and over and over again, which is, what yep. is your platform? Uh, and so for those who have looked to get involved in this arena, uh, I'm sure you have heard that term as well. And Michael's book, Platform, is definitely a book that you want to pick up. Uh, you've got an online membership community. And, uh, of course, you're a family man. You've been married to Gail for uh, 37 years. and you got five daughters, four son-in-law's, and eight great children. Oh, my God. You've got it all and it's going to be a very Crazy. busy holiday season. <laughs> so does everybody come to uh, Michael Hyatt's house for uh, for the holidays? Is that what goes on what goes on for Thanksgiving for you?
2: Yeah, we've got one daughter and her husband who won't be joining us. They're out of state. But everybody else is going to be here including my parents, including one of my son-in-law's parents and a few extra guests. So it's going to be nuts.
0: Nice. Can't wait. So for, for those that aren't uh, coming to, to the Holiday Fiesta, have you, uh, have you removed them from the will? Or are they gone? Are they, are they dead to you now? Is that they're,
2: it? They're history. They're history. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> All right, so here's how, uh, here's how we're going to do it, ladies and gents. Uh, thank you for joining us live. If you're listening to the podcast version of this, uh, of course, we appreciate that as well. But if you're joining us live here, uh, there is a chat section uh, that you'll see there on the webinar panel. Uh, so you can either use the chat section uh, or the questions section, and actually, questions is probably the best place uh, to go ahead and put your questions, uh, and that way we can get to all of your questions uh, here, or as, at least as many of them as we as we possibly can. So, Michael, I wanted to start out with a, a question, and, and then Mary and Rich and everybody else here, you know, we'll all we'll, jump in. But I want to start out with a question for you uh, about how you got into this whole area of work of moving from sort of that entrepreneurial environment to going into this this world of, I guess what we might call sort of that expert sort of that guru space of teaching and coaching and blogging and so on. What was that transition like for you, and why did you decide to get into this arena as opposed to staying in that in that corporate world?
2: Well, it was almost accidental. Uh, back in 2004, I broke my ankle. And so I was laid up in bed. I had surgery. I was laid up in bed for about a week, recovering. And I'd kind of been interested in this whole area of blogging, which was very new at the time. And I thought, you know, I'm a writer. I'd love to give uh, expression to some of the things I've been thinking. Maybe it'd be helpful to somebody else. Maybe I could kind of uh, lead, you know, in a category. And there really wasn't any more thought than just a hobby. In fact, for the first four years, I only had about a thousand unique visitors a month and I was blogging mostly on productivity and I was just sharing my hacks and uh, tips with other people and sometimes I would go into detail and other people found it helpful so in 2008 I got involved in Twitter and uh, I think Facebook at the time too but a couple of big blog sites picked up a few blog posts that I wrote and my traffic exploded I went to 22,000 unique visitors uh, a month uh, on average and today I have about half a million unique visitors a month on average and so it was just one of those things that just kind of mushroomed into this thing that I didn't anticipate. But in 2011, when we sold the company to HarperCollins, um, I had the opportunity to step into what I'd always dreamed about doing, but never really felt like I had the platform to do. But suddenly, I found myself at the platform. And I thought, I'm going to be an author, and a speaker, and a coach. And so that's how I got launched into this.
0: Mm-hmm. And so as you look then back on that progression of, you know, basically at zero followers, zero subscribers, et cetera, what do you say to folks? How do you encourage them to stay the course when they can't get past those two or three hundred odd visitors per month? Because it can happen for a while and then all of a sudden it starts to hockey stick. What, what, What do you tell folks?
2: Well, I've, I've now coached thousands of people through Platform University and other venues that I uh, operate in, and one of the things I've seen is that a lot of people quit right before the inflection point, point. Mm-hmm. and you've really got to have the wherewithal to stay the course, and it's never been easier. It's not easy, but it's never been easier. I mean, back when I was doing it, there were really no models to follow. I, there's nobody I could really learn from. I was just trying to figure it out, out on my own, and I went through uh down a lot of empty roads and a lot of cul-de-sacs and you know tried things that didn't work. But today there's there's an easier path toward that. But I think the key is if I've learned anything, it's add as much value to people as you can. If you can understand where your audience wants to go, in other words, what do they aspirationally want to achieve? And then secondly, what's getting in their way, what's standing in the way of them achieving what they dream of achieving. If you could remove those obstacles or those challenges and help them succeed and add value, your platform will grow. It's that simple. Go ahead, and hard. It.
3: Can I ask yes, a question? Yeah. It's easier today to do what you've accomplished, but it's a much more crowded space out there. So what would you suggest people do to try to stand out even more with taking into consideration adding value because it's a – you have a soft small voice can take a lot more
2: time yeah I don't I don't think so Mary first of all it's a great question but I I remember back when I was in the book publishing world I would have people come all the time to me and they'd say gosh I want to write a book on you know pick a topic marriage or parenting but the the field is so crowded and I quickly learned that certain topics will sell perennially because there's a constant need for it so like uh, in January, I can guarantee you that there'll be a whole new slew of weight loss books. They won't be saying really that much new, but there'll be a new new audience for it. And here's the thing that I think we all have to realize. Nobody's ever heard your message, whatever it is or how common it may be, filtered through your experience and your personality. So you've got to embrace the uniqueness of who you are and your own voice and lean into that. In a sense, novelty is overrated. The main thing is to be able to say it in a way that people hear it, and that's when you embrace your authentic self and tell your own own story.
0: Yeah, okay, that's a, that's a great point. Uh, l- let me ask you this, Michael, because you're you're in the podcasting world, and your podcast, as the numbers show, I mean, does it does really really well. This is your life is, it's broad. I mean, there's nothing (laughs) in, it's not like Orvis, right, where, and I use that as an example during some of my presentations where I talk about Orvis and fly fishing, you know, and it's like that fly fishing podcast is like, if you want highly targeted leads, like if somebody is pulling the Orvis podcast about fly fishing, you dang well know that like they are interested in fly fishing. You could sell them products and services all day long. It's very narrow, but it's very clear that that is their audience. This is Your Life is very broad. Reinvention Radio is uh, is broad, and we we actually struggle with this ourselves. What do you do in terms of identifying sort of the avatar, if you will, or who do you speak to in your language or in your marketing, or how do you think about it for This Is Your Life because it is a broader scope look at uh, you know mm-hmm. the potential topics and what's out there that people could be listening to
2: yeah totally I mean if I was coaching myself I'd say dude you're too broad you know you need to narrow it down niche it down and I think for most people that want to make a mark that's a great place to start you know I've been building this brand now since 2004 so I've got a little bit of advantage there in that I think uh, my voice is a brand and people just want to hear my opinion on whatever it is I want to talk about within reason but I would say my avatar is I'm trying to help overwhelmed high achievers Get the clarity, the resources, and the strategies they need, and this is a key part, to win at work and to succeed at life. So for people that are are not just focused on success in their career, but want to have success relationally, they want to have success with their health, and they want to have a sort of a broad definition, you know, I want to be the guy that helps you get there. So I'm not the hero, but I'm the guide that can help you do that. And as a result of that, I tried to divide it up into the categories that people need to succeed or to win at work and succeed at life. And for me, that starts with personal development and then productivity and then team leadership and then influence or platform development.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, and Rich or Mary, when you have things, just raise it and then we can kind of go in. a. Might make it easier to see where you guys are at with your thinking on that. I don't want to cut you guys off because I know you have a lot for Michael as well. But one of the things that I wanted to ask you, is, uh, Michael, is that I know you're a big proponent of creating effective teams. And yes. the importance of teams and organizations. Uh, and no matter what you do, you, you can't do it alone. I mean, you can try, but ultimately you're going to need good people around you to build something that is – not only sustainable but it, you know, has a significant impact. So talk a little bit about how you look at your own team, not when you're coaching somebody else, but how do you look at your own team and how do you incentivize them and what do you do on a daily or weekly or quarterly or yearly basis, especially as we're coming up here on 2017, what do you do to incentivize your own team and get them focused on building the Michael Hyatt brand?
2: Yeah, thanks, that's a great question. Well, when I left the corporate environment, I thought, yes, uh, I thought when I left the corporate environment, I kind of had it with a big team. I had 700 employees in that context. I had 10 direct reports, and that was leadership at a at a higher level. Then all of a sudden, I find myself, I'm a solopreneur. and Now, I'm having to book my own travel. I'm having to manage my own inbox, and I'm overwhelmed. I'm thinking, this is what everybody wants? I don't think so. This is not that fun so the first thing I did was I hired a a virtual assistant and this was something I didn't even know existed at the time but that uh, I could hire somebody as I did for five hours a week who started managing my calendar and managing my inbox and oh my gosh it freed me up to be able to do the, the the real high payoff revenue producing activities that would grow my business so I thought well this is pretty cool so in three weeks I took her to 10 hours a week and then 15 hours a week and then 20 hours a week now here five years later I have 23 full-time employees. And so the fun part about that is I have a team that's focused exclusively on content development and I'm kind of part of that team. Then I've got a team that's focused on marketing, that I've got a finance and accounting team, and then I've got a kind of a support team that's in in the background. And the way that I think about my team is that they are the most important people that I focus on. They're more important than my customers. They're more important than my anybody else that's that's involved. Uh, my readers, anybody else. I feel like if I take care of them, they'll take care of everybody else. So they've got to feel well cared for. So we offer, I think super competitive benefits like we pay hundred percent of health care. We have a bonus plan based on the performance of the company for every single member of my team. So everybody's rowing in the same direction, knowing exactly what the goal is, and we report to them every month where we are in relationship to that goal. So they know that if they exceed it, their bonus, their bonus is not capped. So in other words, they can make as much. You know, if the company blows up one year and does exceedingly well, they're going to do great as well. So that's how I think about it.
0: Mm-hmm. And and so to that end, what are the primary revenue drivers in your business? And as you look at 2017 what are your priorities
2: yeah well for us we've got a lot of products um I would say probably about a third of the business today well actually about 25 percent of the business comes from my membership site platform University and then about uh, probably sixty percent of the business comes from courses that uh, that I produce online so I've got five days to your best year ever I've got free to focus which is my productivity course and I've got a course on publishing called get published and those are really the biggest areas of growth and they have been the biggest areas of growth. And then we have book royalties and some miscellaneous speaking and stuff that fills out uh, the rest, but those are the the primary drivers.
0: So do you you get to a point where you, I I guess for lack of a better term, do do you kind of hit the ceiling on how far you can take this domestically? Because it, it seems like the next natural step for you, just looking, from an outside you know, perspective at your business would be taking this internationally. And in yeah. so far as different languages are concerned and taking this globally, is, is that on the radar? Is that on the agenda?
2: Yeah, so last week we spent the entire week with our executive team in a strategic planning retreat. And we were talking about these very things. What are our strategic priorities for 2017? What are the, the goals that we're gonna pursue in 2017? And we've really focused down on about seven of those. But number one, is to take one of my courses into Spanish language. So we're trying to find the equivalent of me that can be the spokesperson, we affectionately call him Miguel, but, uh, but whoever would be the spokesperson for this brand in uh, the Spanish language countries, we want to find that person and get at least one course into the market for next year because we think within the next five years, half of our revenue could be coming uh, from the Hispanic market.
0: Yeah, well, yo hablo espanol pero es muy malo. So uh, I'm not no, sure. I'm I'm your franchisee. Guy. <laughs> I will be your first, yeah, exactly on that guy. So, Rich, I know you had some uh, some thoughts around technology and uh, and well, some things on that. What what did you want to jump in on? There's actually
1: a couple things, but I want to really quickly go back to, if you don't mind, the team building part. Yeah, because uh, there is a wide variety of of people that we deal with, from people who are just starting out in entrepreneurialism all the way to you know the high achievers that probably would be in your market and I've likened building a business a lot I use sports analogies a lot where it's easy to start a business it's easy to keep a business for a long time but it's really hard to grow a business Mm. because the systems change right and that's where the sports analogy comes in in the beginning it's kind of like golf everyone else's game doesn't really affect your game it's just your game and then later kind of basketball team the center falls down you're the forward you don't just give them free ride to the basket you know someone you got to wear that hat ride in there real quick and then you get into football and everyone's defense is over here offense is over here is there something you've seen in that team building process that helps you from step one all the way through where everyone's this completely different systems are in place at that point?
2: Yeah, one of my um, mentors is Dan Sullivan. And one of the things that Dan says that I love is he says, what got you out of Egypt won't get you into the promised land. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's really true. you know, And so I tell my team, and I think one of the most important things uh, team leaders can have is the commitment to grow, because what it took to grow the company to a million dollars is different than what it's going to take to grow it to ten million or to a hundred million. And so you've got to keep reinventing yourself. I've got to keep doing that as the CEO. If I don't keep reinventing myself and learning new skills, then I'm going to be obsolete fast, and I'm going to have to replace people. And people know this. I mean, I don't. I don't say that to create uncertainty or doubt. I just say all of us owe it to the company to keep growing in our skills, our knowledge, our ability to see the future and try to skate to the puck. Um, use another sports analogy. Um, we've, got, we've got to be able to do that. And so I'm looking for people that are hungry to grow, that are already accomplished, but don't, that they're not satisfied with their success. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. So we, we, yes, oh, completely makes sense. But at the same time, I would imagine
1: there's a flexibility that has to happen in this world where you can change with a click of a button. That team might be the size of a whale, but it needs to be like a function like a school of minnows that can just change on a dime. Totally.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I would sense. say agility is in, incredibly important. You know, it's a it's it's not actually one of our core values, but we talk about agility a lot and as we grow that's my biggest fear because you know if you go from one person to two people to three people you're growing exponentially in terms of the complexity of the relationships the communication challenges like one of the things that's really helped us grow from a technology perspective is slack you guys use that at all
0: we don't know but I'm familiar with it with other organizations yeah
2: yeah it's a phenomenal tool I mean it's killed email for us in terms of internal communication but it allows us to be really um, resilient responsive and agile as we deal with problems and solve problems but we're kind of at a place where we've got to go to something else because it's becoming unwieldy at this point so we're looking at some other uh, solutions for that But you just you just cannot get married to a solution whether it's technology or whether it's your corporate structure or even your marketing strategy you know we're seeing some major things that are happening in the market in terms of Uh, The strategy that we used for the last couple of years isn't working quite as effectively as it once did, so we've had to reinvent that as well, and I think that's that's the key to success.
0: Yeah, Mary?
3: So you mentioned Dan Sullivan, a strategic coach. Yes. Uh, So are you of the philosophy, going back to, again, the sports, that Tiger had a coach, Mickelson has a coach, do you yourself have a coach to take your business to the next level and keep yourself out in front of it?
2: Yes, absolutely. And I've had a coach since 2000. So for 16 years, I've had a, a coach. And for the last two years, it has been Dan. Okay.
0: Great program. Yeah, it really is. sure and, and, Michael, let me ask you this. So we're just on that technology front on that conversation there. With Wi-Fi coming to the car and with autonomous vehicles hitting the road, you know, I mean, by... 2025, I mean, the the odds of there being any self-driving, I mean, in terms of us driving our own cars, I mean, it, it's pretty slim that that's going to be the case. We're going to be taken everywhere just simply uh, on a beck and call. So how do you think the pending technologies will impact your business, and how do you think it affects people like us who create content?
2: I think it's good news for us because it creates more space for people to learn and develop. So for people that wanna grow and develop, I think one of the great things about robotics and all this stuff is that it's gonna mean that it's gonna require less effort for us to accomplish what we wanna accomplish. Uh, My productivity course is called Free to Focus, but the subtitle is important. It's called Achieve More by Doing Less. And I really believe in that. I work 35 hours a week, no more, no less. And our company up until this last year has grown 100% a year every year. This year we grew 60%. We intentionally uh, slowed it down a little bit so that we could get the infrastructure that we needed in place. But, um, yeah, I, th- I think that that means for all of us we've got more time to spend on ourselves, on the people that we love. And if you're developing content that's going to help people exploit that additional time, uh, you're in a good place.
0: Mm-hmm. All right, and if you're just, uh, just joining us, thank you for... Doing so here, we are with Michael Hyatt on a very special holiday edition here of Reinvention Radio. And since we're right around the Thanksgiving holiday, uh, Michael, why don't you share what, uh, what you're grateful for, man? It's, uh, you know, it's an important time to reflect on, on where you're at, and, and I know you're a spiritual guy. Uh, why don't you share what, uh, what you're grateful for at the moment?
2: Yeah, I think a couple things. One, you know, we talked about my team. I'm super thankful for the team that I've got. I mean, I just, I sat in those meetings last week as we were talking about strategic planning, and I thought, gosh, it's just awesome to be in a company where the people that work for me are smarter than I am. Mm. And and I, and I mean, I really mean that, not like in some kind of false humility sort of way, but I mean, I really mean that. I'm amazed at how they bring stuff back to me, and it's better than I could have imagined it or executed it. I'm super thankful for my family. My entire family lives right here in Middle Tennessee, where I live, and so um, we get together very frequently, as with a couple of my daughters this afternoon. So you know, it's great to to have family, and I think that's a lot of what the holidays are about: is just uh, realizing what we've been given. And let me just say this: despite what was a very tumultuous, cantankerous, horrible election process, I don't know anybody that enjoyed it Uh, I'm thankful I live in this country and this country has the resilience it has that we have the freedoms and the opportunities that we have I think we're living in the best time possible in history I just I'm just grateful every day to wake up and have the opportunities I have
0: Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely and let, let me ask you this in in my book what is your what I talk a lot about the basically what's found in the DNA it's what is uniquely yours it's that special gift that you've been given it's what really puts that fire in your soul and then it's a combination of that gift with the primary vehicle you use to share that gift and then the people that you're most compelled to serve so it's the gift the vehicle and the people that makes up the what is your what framework that's really on an internal basis a lot of people talk about your why which is, you know, why you do things, you want to feed starving children, you want to take care of your family, you want to bring clean drinking water. It's something that is really external and it's something that you choose. And as a spiritual guy, you know, I do believe that your what is that which has chosen you and not that which you have chosen, as opposed to your why which you can choose. Just now that you have a very, very basic understanding of the difference between the two, do you have a sense of of what your what is and then what is your primary why at this juncture?
2: Yeah, I think for me, uh, the what is I want to create transformational experiences for people that help them realize their potential. And uh, in everything I do, I'm always thinking about the experience. One of the things you may know about Dan Sullivan is he has a concept called unique ability that sounds very similar. But I think that's part of my unique ability is to be able to think through what are the inputs that create a transformational experience, an environment in which people can really change and, and become the best version of themselves. My why for that is that I feel like that that's what I'm called by God to do. You know, That's why I, I was put on the planet. Uh, that's what I've been given to do, and I feel an accountability ultimately to him uh, for how I execute on that.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. We have a question from Jackie. Uh, and again, if you're joining us live here, use the questions uh, feature there on the, uh, on the GoToWebinar control panel, uh, and you can put your question in there. So we have a question from Jackie. Jackie's asking, uh, when you were a solopreneur, Uh, with just one or two VAs. Were you working only 35 hours at that point or as a startup did you work longer hours during that phase and then work less and less as you went from startup to ramp up to scale up?
2: Yeah that's a fair question. I uh, definitely worked more in those earlier days and one of the things about I think operating inside of my unique ability is over time as I've been able to afford team members and by the way, I you know, haven't gotten into debt to do that. I've always funded everything out of the existing cash flow. And I felt like when I had the excess cash, that was an opportunity to invest in additional team members. But as I've done that, it's allowed me to more narrowly focus on what I and only I can do. So at the beginning, I'm doing everything. And I have a framework inside of uh, the Free to Focus course called the Freedom Compass. And this has as true north where your passion and your proficiency come together. And I call that the desire zone. So when you can really work in your passion and your proficiency, that's perfect. You know, that's your true north. The opposite of that, I call the drudgery zone, where you're neither passionate about it, you're not proficient at it, but it's work that's got to be done. And that's usually the first work that needs to be offloaded when you can afford to hire a VA or even a full-time employee, get rid of that drudgery zone stuff so that you can fo- focus more in the desire zone. And the more leverage you have in the business, the more focused you are in that, uh, in those things that are your unique ability, frankly, the less you have to work because um, those are higher payoff activities that really it's not about how much time you spend in the seat. It's about, you know, the quality of the concepts and how much ripple effect they have in the world.
0: Yeah, that's really, really good. Rich?
2: I was just going to say, and I'd imagine when you
1: build the team right and you're off, you're, you're offloading your drudgery zone, if you're building the right team, that's their passion zone, right? So they're actually, they're proficient and enjoy doing what you're passing off to them and what appears to be maybe mundane to you, they're like, oh my gosh, this is so, like some people actually love data entry and I would, I'd be bald on this episode (laughs) right now. I'd be pulling my hair out. But yeah, I mean, it, it seems as if when you build
2: that right team, that's part of the equation. It's totally true, and I think it's just the wonderful way that God has made the world is that there are people of all types who like all different kinds of work. For example, there's if you, have, if you don't have passion, but you've got proficiency, I call that the disinterest zone, and like accounting, I'm really good at it. You know, I've got a lot of experience in a big environment with finance and accounting. I just have zero, I mean zero passion around it. And as it turns out, my CFO loves it. He's really good at it. He gets all geeked out and excited about running the numbers and creating reports, and so it, it's just as you're you're saying, Rich, that uh, there are people out there. I don't care how mundane it is, or how obnoxious or repulsive it might be to you. There are people out there that love doing it. Like I can't imagine anything worse than working in an emergency room or driving an ambulance, and yet I've got people like one of my son-in-laws who loves that. You know, he lives for that. He's passionate about it.
0: Sure. Yeah yeah, and, and to that end uh, Jackie actually had a follow-up question. and I think you said this, but I just want to make sure we pull this particular answer out and, and just highlight it. In Dan Sullivan's program, he talks about uh, unique ability. Uh, what right. did you say what your unique ability is?
2: Yeah, it's the ability to engineer transform transformational experiences. Yeah. So I look at everything through that lens.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's really, really powerful. And, and so you've accomplished a lot in your career. Um, one could argue that you could probably just chill and spend time with your kids and your grandkids and not keep pushing as hard as you do. What, what really then keeps your fire burning? Why, why keep pushing forward? You know, it's
2: it's interesting that uh, I had a conversation similar to this a couple of years ago with one of my peers in the industry, and we were both speaking at a conference. And it was in late November, so we were both finishing up that current year, and we both had record years. And she said, you know, I'm asking myself the question, how much is enough? You know, when do I need to stop and just be thankful for what I have and not press on? And so then she she said to me, she said, when will that be for you? And I said, I hope to God never. And here's why. It's not because I need more stuff. But it's because the bigger challenge, when I'm out there in my discomfort zone, creates growth. So if I'm working out with my trainer in the morning and he's pushing me harder, he always does this, pushes me harder than I think I can push myself or definitely harder than I would push myself, that's what creates the growth. And that's the thing I love about business, why I hate the word retirement, why I will never retire. I'm going to die with my boots on because I want to grow. You know, I think that's the very essence of life. When you stop growing, you die, even if it takes a few years for your body to catch up.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's a great point. And, and so to that end, I know that you, you're a strong proponent of, of what you and many, many others call big thinking. In your mind, what, what does it take to be a big thinker, and then how do you kind of reel that in? where you want to change the world, you want to do all of these amazing things, yeah. but you still have to do something right here and right now. Can you, so can you talk to the power of big thinking for a minute?
2: Sure. So um, when I think about goal setting, and I've got a course called Five Days to Your Best Year Ever that's my biggest course, and it's all about, about goal setting. And when people set their goals, um, it's, it's interesting to see the patterns they fall into, especially corporate people, because typically they'll set their goals inside the comfort zone. You know they don't want to get in trouble if they miss a goal, and so they'll dial it up just enough to show some improvement, but not so much that it makes them uncomfortable. That's the definition of the the comfort zone. And inside of the comfort zone, you know how to achieve that growth. You're confident that you can get it. There's no self-doubt. But if you dial it up a few clicks past that, into your discomfort zone, you start to feel some emotion around this. And I, I see these as three emotional markers that you're in the discomfort zone and by the way right where you should be so if you feel fear like it scares you a little bit if you feel uncertainty because the path isn't clear you're not quite sure how to get from where you are to where you wanna be and you feel some doubt you're not quite sure what, that you have what it takes that's exactly where I wanna be I wanna dial up the goal to where it's bigger than I think I can accomplish but there's the comfort zone, there's the discomfort zone, and where you don't want to be is the delusion zone. You know, so for me to think, for example, that I could at my age uh, get on the PGA tour, you know, anybody that's played golf with me would tell you that's delusional. There's no way <laughs> you could do that. Um, so, so you want to be careful. You don't want it to be delusional. But all the research shows that goals that aren't set in the discomfort zone are not compelling enough to motivate the behavior on the execution side that will actually accomplish the goal. So the best thing you can do if you want to accomplish a goal is dial it up into the discomfort zone so you're thinking bigger than you ordinarily would.
0: Yeah,
3: I, Mary? Go
2: oh, oh, I was just gonna say that to me I've always
1: said you wanna live either doing something you love or outside your comfort zone, but the perfect place is both and if you think about it that's kind of where extreme sports was born right they that's were true. yeah and these people would sleep on each other's couches they didn't care what was going on eat top ramen like that's what they loved but then you know they were constantly pushing out of their comfort zones and look i mean look how many sports have been created and it's true. come in olympic sports all because of this small groups of people that were doing things they loved while living out of their
2: comfort zone the whole time and things that other people told him were impossible. And the very nature of the discomfort zone is once you achieve what's in the discomfort zone, now all of a sudden it's in your comfort zone. Mm-hmm. So right.
1: so like have the done the backflip on
2: the motorcycle
1: two times, so now do three times on the motorcycle. That's right. <laughs> well,
3: and I was going to mention that Muhammad Ali is known for saying if your dreams don't scare you, they're not big enough. So in your experience, do you find that people are consciously or unconsciously avoiding the discomfort
2: zone? Oh, I think they're, I think they're consciously avoiding it. Probably a lot of unconscious too, but I think people get trained over time and they create these limiting beliefs uh, where, and maybe this is the subconscious part, where they really think they can't accomplish that and because they shrink back when they feel those uncomfortable feelings, they never even give themselves the opportunity to try. I I used to have this English setter named Nelson and uh, we we didn't have a fence around our yard at the time and we live in a downtown historic area and very busy street. So we put an invisible fence in to keep him from, you know, wandering off the property and getting hit by a car. And one of the things I noticed is that over time he didn't even need the invisible fence to stay inside of the boundary. So even if I went turned the fence off, went on the other side of this invisible boundary and offered him a treat, he would not budge because the invisible fence had moved from an external barrier to an internal one, it was between his ears. And I I think there's a lot of us that operate like that in life. We've got this internal barrier that functions just like an invisible fence and we think, you know, we can't make more money than this or we can't achieve more than that. And who says, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just, it's an invisible barrier, it's a limiting belief that's a function of just how we think about the world. So, so pulling it
1: together with what Mary said and with what you're saying, it sounds as if it probably starts out conscious mostly, and then it just turns into subconsciously because of over time, like you said with your dog, right? It's
0: both. It could be subconscious. Yeah,
2: a little bit,
3: and then it becomes. Oh no, I'm not going to do that again. I'm not going to believe in that again.
2: Well, I think that's why it. Once you realize that that's happening, you can really be part of the one percent that can be very successful. Because it's not that other people that are successful are smarter than you, often they're not. It's not because they have more talent or they had better parents or went to the right school or had money to start with or whatever, but it's really about courage. And it's really about willing to do it even when you don't feel comfortable. And you know, a lot of people said you know, do it scared and I think that's, that's really a secret to growth. One of the things, we, we talked about Dan Sullivan, one of the things he talks about is that courage and confidence look exactly the same on the outside but on the inside they look dramatically different because when you're when you have courage but not confidence you're scared to death but you're acting in spite of your fear. But once you've actually achieved it, now all of a sudden you can be confident because you know how to do it and then you gotta pick another level of commitment that leads to or requires more courage in order to grow.
0: And uh, so there's a a question from Kat, and I'm going to try to read a little bit between the lines here, Michael, but what Kat is asking is the power, and just kind of going back to team for a second, um, the power of adding team members who are more working on a a strategic level and not just sort of on an assistant level um, because she feels that she's a better innovator than inventor, if you will, and she can take any endeavor and make it better, but she's not interested in creating her own thing, and most gurus want to create their own thing and find a support staff. Any suggestions or input for Cat on how to build a higher-level team member into your organization when you don't necessarily want to, to be the one that directs everyone on what to do? Not sure if that yeah, makes that, sense or not, but that's that, how I'm translating it.
2: Yeah, I'm not sure I fully understand that question but yeah. obviously you've got to get clarity about what you need uh, in your business. I think one of the reasons I love to recruit from my tribe is because they are people that already get me, people that already understand my values, understand what my mission and vision is for the world and so they fit more naturally into it. Then it becomes a matter of trying to find the people that have the right skills that I need in order to advance the mission uh, of the company. So. I don't, I don't feel like I'm answering that very well, but I'm not sure I understand the question fully.
0: Yeah, I think it's a matter of trying to find maybe a high level partner or something of that nature, and maybe we'll just spin it this way, which is what what do you think of partnerships in general?
2: You know I, first of all, I, I there's a sense in which I treat all my team members as partners. You know I want to work when I can with consensus. I want the input of the team. like I'll, I'll give you an example last week when we did uh, strategic planning. The first day we invited everybody in all 23 people into a room and we asked them three questions. We said, what do you think our top priority should be for 2017? What do you think the biggest challenge is we're facing? And then the third question was, what's an opportunity you think we should pursue in 2017? So everybody came having pre-thought those questions and we had them write them on a postcard and then we started with the most junior members of the team. We didn't tell them what we were doing. But we started with the most junior members of the team and had them present those to the group, just talk for a, a minute or two. And the nice thing about that was that we got the best thinking of people before they were influenced by the people that lead them. Mm. So by the time it got to the to the leaders, it was like everything had been said. You know, we had, a, we had a smart team. They saw what needed to be done, and we could sort of amen it, but we weren't the ones, the only ones that were uh, innovating on it. So I think that that kind of exercise was helpful now I've lost the the question.
0: Yeah, no 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 you're good you're just talking about partners in terms of bringing yeah, on yeah. someone as a, as a potential partner or or more than one partner to help build something greater than you could build on your own.
2: Yeah, I'm not I'm not a big fan of partnerships. You know, formal partnerships. And and here's what I've experienced. I know that there's partnerships out there that can work. So there are exceptions to this rule, but in my experience, my limited experience what typically happens is one partner feels like he's bringing more to the table than the other partner. So it may be harder work; it may be more intellectual capital, more contacts, whatever. So I think giving that, getting that balance right, is important if you're going to do a partnership at the very beginning. And I think the only way I would do it again, if I did it, was to make sure I understood how we were going to unwind it if it didn't work and understand that, that at the very beginning. Go ahead and have that tough conversation before there's cash on the table. Because once there's money on the table, um, it's a more difficult conversation to try to wrestle to the ground.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. So let me ask you this, your background, you, you were in the publishing industry for a very, very long time. What, what do you what, what do you see as the future of publishing? Is that, uh, is that an industry that's dead?
2: No, I don't think so. Um, You know, it's definitely a business that's pretty flat in terms of growth. I was just looking at the the figures uh, yesterday for the first part of 2016, first half of 2016 and it was slight growth, like one to two percent. I used to think that the future was digital publishing, but um, that's actually leveled out at about 25 percent of the book business. It hasn't grown in about three years. Uh, in fact, there's a bit of a renaissance on print publishing. Uh, if you talk to millennials and younger, they don't really read digital books. There's exceptions, but by and large that's not the market for digital publishing. It's mostly baby boomers who are reading these devices and have the cash to spend on lots of books and can read them in large print on their Kindle. It's not kids. They want the artifact. You know, They want something they can feel and smell and touch. Mm-hmm. So so I do, I do think one trend that we are seeing is shorter books and shorter content segments. So I think that people's attention span, sadly, uh, because of the Internet, is decreasing.
0: Yeah, and, and actually to that end, I mean, you became famous largely, you did a lot of things, but largely in sort of this arena, if you will, you became famous for preaching about platform and the power of platform and how to build your platform, et cetera a lot of the time people wanted to build their platforms because the conversations as i said earlier with publishers were hey we might publish you but what can you do in terms of when you have a book how are you going to get it out to the world I, mean, I think we all know that publishers are really just printers and and it's up to us to market our own products and services but now that we have come to where we are it almost seems like the conversation around building a platform may not necessarily be the same conversation we should be having because when you look at platform from the standpoint of I need that platform to get the book publishing deal if that is no longer sort of the the carrot at the end of the stick is getting that book publishing deal why build the platform at all?
2: Well first of all if you do want to publish a book whether it's self-publishing or traditional publishing you've got to have a platform because what the publisher traditional publisher can get you is distribution what they can not generally do is drive demand for the product and they leave that largely sadly perhaps up to you but if you don't have a traditional publisher and you want to publish a book who's gonna sell it if you don't have a platform so you only need a platform if you want to do traditional publishing or if you want to self publish my, my contention is you need it either way if you want to get your voice heard uh, above the audience, if or above the the noise, if you don't want to be dependent on somebody else giving you permission or access to their platform, you know, if you you've got an editor that says yes, you can write for Forbes magazine, we'll let you get access to our platform. Uh, if you want to have somebody else invite you onto a speaking platform that's not your own, but that's the kind of permission stuff that really makes it difficult for most people to either self-publish or traditional publish and be successful. Much better to build your own platform and control it.
0: Yeah, yeah, that makes a a lot of sense. As we hit the uh, home stretch here, guys, if you have any questions, uh, now's the time to to pop them into the question box. I've got a couple more, uh, but Rich, I think you had another one, and I know, Mary, you've got a question as well. So uh, ladies first, Mary?
3: Well, no, just going back to your question, Steve, because I was told by my agent that publishers don't buy books, they buy marketing plans, and it was critical to have a platform and then after 2008, it's not just um, You'd get advances if you were more of a famous person that your platform was totally proven and now we've created a whole new wave of platforms with people having vast databases or profiles on Twitter or Instagram or whatever that might be. Did you have a different take on that Steve? Are you just curious of his opinion?
0: Yeah, I mean, just just curious because uh, as we look at publishing as an industry as a whole, more often than not, a really good blog post will be read more times than books will be purchased. I mean, we can look at the number of books that are sold and compare that to the number of times a Michael Hyatt blog post is read and shared and liked and so on. You can see that the numbers, I mean, they're, they're, there's, there's a massive difference between the two. So most authors won't sell you know, more than 500 to 1,000 books, whereas a blog post that's well-written could be shared 500 or 1,000 times and read tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of times. So just then, more from that perspective.
3: Right, but then the difference is the monetization of that blog post being read that number of times.
0: Yeah, I would I would
2: say you know because I'm committed to transformation and people actually changing, not just being exposed to something. Uh, it's the kind of writing I do. You know, I think a blog post is broad but shallow. A podcast takes more time. You know, you can read a blog post in maybe two or three minutes, but a podcast you're going to listen to from 30 to 60 minutes, depending on how long the show is, and then you move from that into books, into courses, into membership sites, into coaching into one-on-one coaching you know I think that as you increase access or as you increase exposure you also increase the likelihood of transformation so to me getting being broad is not as important as going deep with the few and actually seeing the change that you're hoping to affect
0: yeah rich
2: yeah actually it was like you guys
1: planned that out to have perfectly timed my next question and it's kinda of, you utilizing other people's platforms like Facebook, Instagram, is there a Pareto Principle 80-20 rule that you use of playing on other people's platforms and bringing their audience back to your platform? Is there some sort of a hmm. percentage or something that you use? I know it's not super cut and dry, but.
2: Is it, yeah, we, we definitely in marketing our products use other people's platforms. We do that through, uh, joint venture agreements or through affiliate relationships Again, uh, we're promoting five days to your best you ever right now and we have this is crazy we've never had this many but we've got a good affiliate manager we have fifteen hundred affiliates right now
0: don't blow and up so, Matt's head any more than it needs to be blown up come on Matt, I know really. I know
2: <laughs> but uh, but he's done a phenomenal job and so in a sense we're going through the door on their push they're giving us access to their audience people that I wouldn't organically reach otherwise and all those people are opting in will become part of uh, our mailing list as well so it's a great way to build an audience fast another one of my friends Stu McLaren Do you guys know Stu
0: yes we do no. awesome. early study
2: <laughs> so so Stu launched a course this last uh, fall called tribe he didn't really have a mailing list to speak of I mean, a few thousand people now he's got tens of thousands because Guys like me got behind it because we love Stu, we loved the course and promoted it. And it was a great way for him to build an audience very quickly.
0: Yeah, no, that's a great point. And, and just as a follow up to that and uh, trying to be respectful for your time, and let me ask you the question, how much more of we uh, of you do we have at this moment?
2: Uh, about 10 minutes because I've got another, another interview yep. to go to.
0: All right, sweet. So how does someone get on, a radar because you've been able to move the needle pretty well man I mean when you jump behind Jeff Walker and you've jumped behind some other people and you've gotten into this game more recently you've been able to move the needle pretty quickly because of the level of influence that you had if somebody wants to get on your radar and become part of that inner circle if you will what are some of the things they can do to to get Michael Hyatt's attention
2: you know it's it's not dissimilar from what you do in just the real world and that is uh, add value you know, in some way, like people that uh, tend to post my stuff or retweet it or cover stuff that I'm doing on their blog. I, every single mention that happens anywhere on the web about me, I get an alert. We subscribe to a service called Mentions, and so I get that every single morning what's happened on the web. And those people that are, are repeat, uh, I was going to say offenders, uh, repeat benefactors are people that give my attention. And I think, you know, I, I do the same thing. People that I'm trying to get on their radar, I try to be generous and helpful to them as well.
0: Yeah, and just so we can kind of keep this then to your schedule, uh, maybe just some quick concise answers on a couple of questions that uh, that we okay. have here. Uh, one is from Keith. How do you get started with a limited budget? Uh, what are the right first steps to take to get started? I assume we're talking about building platform influence exposure.
2: Yeah, I still think it's start a blog. You know, you hear all this stuff about blogs are dead. They're not dead at all. I think that's the quickest way to start articulating your message and getting real clarity around that, and begin to build an audience around the message that you can eventually monetize.
0: Nice question from Dawn. Uh, decades, and hopefully decades from today, uh, you're on your deathbed and you had five more minutes with your children and grandchildren. What would you say to them?
2: Wow. That's a big one. I don't one. know if I can answer that, that one.
0: That is. I know. Perfect. Sorry. That should not have been a speed <laughs> round. Sorry about that. <laughs>
2: I'm not. I'm not sure about that one. I might have to start crying here.
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah. All right. Well, we'll we'll uh, we'll save that one for the end, and we'll circle back to it. Okay. Um, who inspires you?
2: Well, I think you know, kind of the usual suspects. You know, the people in my industry that I read and follow um, are great inspirations. You know, people like uh, Don Miller and and Jeff Walker and Tony Robbins and Amy Porterfield and a lot of those. Uh, folks. The things that, that's really been different for me in this industry as opposed to the publishing industry which was very competitive is that all the people that are competing with each other in this space are really great friends and supportive of one another and encouraging of one another and trying to promote one another and I just love the culture uh, of this industry. So just the way they live, what they're committed to, and their in terms of the impact they're trying to make in the world um, inspires me. All
0: right, you got a last question for Michael?
3: I was just going to comment to that, that earlier in the segment you had mentioned that each person's unique ability, their message, and the way they deliver it, and that's what you're describing with the people that you're kind of friends with in this industry. You're not competing directly, you know what I mean? It's like we all have our own voice and there's enough people out there to become part of our tribe.
2: Right. Yeah, exactly right. I think it... It comes, and this is something I really believe, and maybe it sounds cliche, but I really think it comes down to having an abundance mentality. One of the things my wife says to me all the time, and she said this to me through thin and through thick, when I've had setbacks and when I've had success, there's more where that came from. And I think that's a very different attitude than you know, holding on to everything and hoping that nobody gets your stuff because there's not enough to go around.
0: Yeah, I agree. Rich, the last question for Michael
2: no it it
1: was just really kinda go back to that other platform question that dial in just a tad Um, do you think you need to be everywhere or do you just stay in your zone if you're just blogging is that enough to get them to come or do you need to go to other places to bring them back
2: yeah I think it's important to be where your potential customers are if you're gonna monetize what you're doing but you don't have to be everywhere my customers are not everywhere you know, there's a lot of people that have got the fever about Snapchat, and they feel compelled that they got to be on Snapchat. You know, I don't feel like I don't feel compelled to do that. I mean, it's kind of fun. I especially like the filters. But uh, in terms of reaching my audience or serving a business function, I don't think it does. I think it's more important to do what you do with excellence and to do what you do really well. That's going to get you more noticed than just being everywhere.
0: Yeah, no, that's awesome. So we're going to be uh, jumping in here to support uh, your best year ever launch. I'll be uh, we'll be getting in on that uh, oh, quickly here, but let's uh, let's give you just a, a minute or so to to talk about best year ever because I know it's a very important program uh, for you and for those that it serves. So w- what is the best year ever program?
2: Yeah, this came out of a practice that I began almost two decades ago, where the the week between Christmas and New Year's, I would take to plan my life, or to plan the next uh, year, not just in my professional career, but in my personal life as well. And so at one point, my daughter came to me, this was about four years ago, and said, Dad, I think we need to create a program around that. She works with me in the business. And she said, I think it'd be really helpful to people. And I said, okay. I mean, I, I you know, it's something I just kind of took for granted. And so we created this course. And so it's, it's a, a course that is designed to help you create and engineer your best year ever. So to ask yourself, if I had a blank slate, if I had a white canvas, if the next year wasn't determined, and oh by the way it's not, and I could spell it out and define what that might look like for me in terms of what my health would be, what my relationships would be, what my career would be, what my finances would be, what would that look like? And so the five days to your best year ever, you can do this in five hours over five days or you can do it all in one uh, block, it doesn't matter Uh, to me, you can do it either way but we talk about things like uh, overcoming limiting beliefs like dealing with the past and really making sure that you don't drag that into the future and it creates problems because they're not dealt with. Then we talk about setting goals and designing the future, identifying your key motivations, that's on day four, and then how do you make it happen and talk about strategies for how to follow through so that it's not just a new year's resolution that you give up on two weeks after you start but you actually follow through and succeed we've had over 17,000 people go through the course so far and we've had extraordinary stories people paying off uh, one guy hundred thousand dollars worth of debt somebody else losing 75 80 pounds uh, over the course of a year uh, somebody else getting reconnected with somebody they've been divorced from for about five years and getting remarried and all this stuff because they were intentional about designing the year that would be their best and we have people that come back year after year after year. So that's the course in a nutshell.
0: Yeah, nice. no, that's phenomenal. And uh, and as I said, we'll uh, we'll be sending people your way uh, as Thanks. well here. So definitely uh, check out michaelhyatt.com. I think that would be the best place for folks to start in general. Correct?
2: Yes, absolutely.
0: Okay. And uh, and and now now that we, we threw it out there, we, we can't end without at least you giving us one nugget of of what you would say to your children and your grandchildren in those in those last moments. <laughs> Yeah, I think what I
2: would, yeah. what I think I would say is, um, be true to yourself, be whom God has created you to be. Don't be a cheap substitute of somebody else. You know, find your authentic voice and live that truth. So that'd be a start.
0: Yeah. Well, Michael, it's been an honor uh, and a privilege to have you here on this very special episode of Reinvention Radio. Again, for more information about Michael Hyatt michaelhyatt.com is uh, certainly the best place to go. And if you haven't read his books, uh, what are you waiting for? Certainly get started there and read his blog and subscribe. And more than anything else, just make sure that you take really good... What Michael says is so powerful, and I know we haven't had a lot of time here to go deep enough on it, but there's so much gold here. There's so much wisdom, and it comes from a place, a pure place, of really wanting to help you. So I hope you listen to this again and again or you watch this again and again because what you've been able to share with us today, Michael, uh, has been so – it's been really impactful. It's been really helpful. Uh, And certainly from Mary Goulet and Rich Otey and myself and Kelly Polker and why Wade wasn't with us today, Uh, again, we just appreciate you spending some time with us here on Reinvention Radio. And more than anything else, thanks for broadcasting your brilliance and sharing your genius uh, with the rest of us. So thank you.
2: Thanks, guys. Great to be with you. Catch up soon.
0: All right. Sounds good.